0: It's a great pleasure to welcome Jessica Wolfendale, who is uh, no stranger to CCW, um, although you were saying 2006, so yes, that really is seven ago. years ago, uh, so okay. that is, seems now, just a little bit of course, but you know, yes. years ago, uh, when she was here before. Um, she is now uh, an assistant professor of philosophy at West Virginia University, although she's just got tenure, yeah. so that's stop. What's the next stage? A um, she's the author of uh, Torture and the Military Profession, published in 2007, and co editor uh, of a book on New Wars and New Soldiers Military Ethics, military ethics in the Contemporary World. Um, and what she's going to talk about today um, is her new project, which is on war crimes, character, and responsibility. Thank, Jessica, you. thank you. Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to come and speak. It's a really great opportunity for me. I'm looking forward to your comments. I have a handout for you, so I'll start by passing that around. be So while that's going around, I'll just talk a little bit about what this project is. So what I'll be talking about today is basically a summary of a book project. So I'm going to give you a sort of potted version of the central arguments that myself and my colleague, Dr. Matthew Talbot, are currently working on. And this book project is about a year in, so we're still at the early stages of it. And the project is going to address three central questions. The first question that we're going to look at in this book project is whether war crimes result from failures of individual character or whether they're the result of um, extreme situational forces. The second question is whether those who commit war crimes should be held legally and morally responsible for their actions. And the final question, which I won't address today, but we could talk about in question time if people are interested in in the topic, is is how war crimes could be prevented in the future. So our central argument consists of two main claims. First of all, we're going to argue that the situationist account of war crimes is mistaken, and I'll explain what that is in a moment, and we will offer an alternative dispositional account of war crimes. And second, we're going to argue for a theory of responsibility under which soldiers may typically be held morally responsible for war crimes regardless of whether situational forces or dispositions influence their behaviour. And by morally responsible, we mean subject to judgments of praise and blame. Just a side note before I start, I'm not going to talk about defining war crimes in this talk. So, it's something we will of course work on in the book, but for the purpose of (coughs) this talk, I'm just going to take war crimes to mean, you know, crimes of war as defined in international law. The examples I will use are sort of, I guess, what you might call paradigm examples of war crimes. So they're, they're examples which shouldn't cause any controversy over the definition. Okay, so what I want to do in the first part of the talk is talk a little bit about the situationist account of war crimes and our alternative dispositional account. In the second part of the talk, I'll talk about our theory of responsibility. So, situationism. Is a view that's developed in social psychology over a number of years, according to which human behavior is most often explained by seemingly minor situational factors such as being in a hurry, uh, peer pressure, even perhaps smelling a nice scent. So there's a wide number, a wide range of experiments in social psychology, sorry, experiments in social psychology that are claimed to provide support for this theory of human behaviour. So, the ones that you might be familiar with are Stanley Milgram's experiments on obedience to authority, Stanford Prison Experiment by Philip Zimbardo, Solomon Asher's experiments on conformity, and Darley and Batson's Good Samaritan experiments. Do do all of you know at least the Milgram experiments? Okay, that's that's all you need to know really for this (laughs) talk. So a number of philosophers have believed that these experiments cast doubt on the existence of character traits. So there's a quite a wide literature in philosophy about whether or not and to what degree these social psychology experiments threaten virtue ethics. The existence of virtues in the belief that ethical behavior derives from the possession of virtuous character traits. Now we are not engaging in that debate just to put it to one side. So But recently, a number of philosophers have believed that these experiments are particularly relevant to war crimes, to explaining why war crimes occur and why seemingly ordinary military personnel can end up performing acts such as torture. So the the account that we look at in some detail in our book is offered by John Doris and Dominic Murphy. So Doris and Murphy argue that these situation experiments, particularly the Milgram experiments and the Stanford prison experiments, um, suggest a very plausible way of understanding war crimes. And according to Doris and Murphy's view, situational forces, both on the battlefield and off the battlefield, undermine what they refer to as soldiers' normative competence. So they define normative competence as this is a quote a complex capacity enabling its possessor to appreciate ethical considerations ascertain information relevant to particular ethical judgments, and identify behavior implementing their ethical judgments. So normative competence should be understood as a capacity involving not just powers of reflection, so being able to identify ethical considerations, make ethical judgments, but also powers of self-control, being able to actually regulate your behavior by uh, by your ethical judgments. And many philosophers believe that normative competence, or something very like it, is necessary for a person to be subject to attributions of moral responsibility, i.e., in order to be held morally responsible for your actions, you have to be have normative competence or a very similar capacity. So in Dorison Murphy's view, since, as they argue, normative competence is undermined by battlefield situational forces, their conclusion is that soldiers are typically not responsible for war crimes. And I'll talk about the responsibility a bit later in more detail. So, what are the relevant situational forces? Well, first of all, they're what we might call heat of battle pressures, or battlefield forces. These would include stress, extreme fatigue, fear, even exposure to extreme noise. All these factors which a soldier might encounter on the battlefield Impair normative competence by undermining basic cognitive functioning. So, obviously, one of the impacts, one of the effects of, for example, extended sleep deprivation, is extremely degraded basic cognitive functioning. So, if you can't think straight, to put it simply, you can't form complex ethical judgments. Okay, so you're not going to be able to make and act on sophisticated moral judgments under these situational, these battlefield situational forces. Now, we don't necessarily disagree with that claim, uh, with some caveats which I'll talk about later. And I think it may be the case, in fact, there are some battlefield conditions which seriously do undermine soldiers' basic cognitive functioning. But Doris and Murphy actually intend their conclusion to apply to all military personnel, not just those who are involved in heat of combat situations. So they also intend their conclusion to apply to military personnel who are involved in what we're going to call institutional war crimes. So by that I mean war crimes are the product of ongoing institutional policies and practices. So institutionalised torture is a good example of what I'm talking about. These crimes take place far away from the heat of battle. Uh, They're the product of ongoing policies and and implementation. Uh, I think many genocidal campaigns would also count as institutional war crimes as well. So Doris and Murphy say, well, even though a soldier who, military personnel who are involved in, say, institutionalized torture, they're not exposed to extreme fear and fatigue and noise, but they have been subject to what they call distal pressures. So Doris and Murphy define distal pressures as circumstances that may profoundly affect military personnel, beginning at considerable spatial and temporal distance from the point at which atrocity occurs. So, the examples I discuss in their article include basic aspects of military culture and training, including uh, you know, de-individuation, which has been linked to war crimes, so this is a process by which the individual is encouraged to identify with the group rather than with their prior self-conception. Uh, things like group bonding, training in obedience to authority, dehumanisation to killing, all these factors of military culture and training, say Doris and Murphy, impair soldiers' normative competence. And this also occurs through being exposed to ideologies. So in some cases, depending, I guess, on where you have been trained, of course, uh, as, a, you know, as a member of the military, you might be exposed to dehumanising ideologies that are targeting a particular group. And that's another kind of distal pressure that Doris and Murphy believe impairs soldiers' normative competence. But clearly, those kind of processes don't impair normative competence in the same way that, for example, extreme stress and fatigue does. So merely being exposed to say dehumanising ideology doesn't undermine your basic cognitive functioning. You can still sort of think straight, right? Whereas that wouldn't be the case, perhaps, in extreme fear and fatigue. So Doris and Murphy think that these kinds of processes impair normative competence not by undermining basic cognitive functioning, but by restricting moral reasoning. So what they mean by this is that these kinds of processes can lead soldiers to have certain beliefs about what is and is not permissible. So you can see these processes as external forces that kind of push soldiers and other military personnel into the belief that, for example, it's permissible to kill members of a certain group regardless of whether they're civilians or not. That would just be one example. So basically these distal pressures, according to Doris and Murphy, restrict the scope of soldiers' moral reasoning to such an extent that they will lack the ability to understand, recognise, and act on alternative moral judgments, <coughs> And for example, they'll be unable to recognise the moral status of people who have been dehumanised by a racist ideology. So to quote Doris and Murphy, if a government or military organisation has a policy of systematic rape, backed by pervasive racist ideology, perhaps ordinary soldiers cannot reasonably be expected to determine that such conduct is illegal. So the claim is that Given the way these pressures operate on soldiers, it's unreasonable to expect soldiers to be able to recognise certain orders as illegal or immoral. Okay, and thus they claim it's unreasonable to hold soldiers responsible for acting on those moral judgments. Okay, so so Doris and Murphy's central argument is that since soldiers' normative competence is impaired or undermined by both factors on the battlefield and by distal pressures uh, it makes it very difficult for them to appreciate and recognise relevant ethical considerations and so soldiers <laughs> should be typically excused for war crimes. And he, they talk about Abu Ghraib in particular as one example where they think the soldiers involved in Abu Ghraib in the abuse should be excused for their actions. Okay, so we think there are a number of problems with the situation in this account. Firstly, it fails to explain the great variation in perpetrators' motivations and attitudes toward their own actions. So research on perpetrators of war crimes shows a huge variation in both how they explain what they do, how they justify it, and indeed in the sort of level or degree of enthusiasm they bring to their their actions. Yet, on the situationist account, it's actually hard to see how that could be possible. So if we're all trained in the same way, we all get sent to the same... deployed to the same combat zone, we're all subject to the same pressures, then the situationist account would lead us to think that you would all behave roughly in the same way. But that doesn't doesn't seem to be true if you actually look at perpetrator accounts. So one psychologist, and I'm just drawing a blank now on his name, unfortunately, Referred to this as a sort of the smile factor. There are some perpetrators who really seem to enjoy what they do, and some who don't, who seem to actually commit their actions with a degree of almost disgust or regret. So again, there's huge individual differences that's difficult to explain under the situation in this account. Second, <coughs> the account fails to explain the manner in which military culture and training actually cultivate dispositions. And by that I mean, sets of beliefs, attitudes and behaviours that alter how soldiers perceive their actions and respond to situations and interpret their own roles within the military. So for these reasons, we want to offer an alternative count of war crimes, which we'll just call a dispositional count or a character account. Now we're defining character traits or dispositions in the following manner, sets of behaviour informing dispositions that are sets of beliefs, desires and actions. That are stable over time. So we're not using, so our definition of character is not the same as a virtue. It's, non, it's non-moral in that sense. Uh, nor is it the view that character is a stable, broad-based disposition that's totally independent from the situations in which a person acts. That'll become clear in a moment. Okay, so what we're drawing on is a social cognitivist account of personality that was developed by the psychologist Walter Mischel and has found support in a number of other work by social psychologists, including Lee Ross and Richard Nisbet, as well as philosophers such as Nancy Snow and Daniel Russell. And this particular social cognitive account is called the CAP theory, a cognitive affective personality system. So I'll just give you a very very brief overview of this theory. I'm not going to be able to do it justice here, but I think he'll give you the, the main idea. So, in the CAP theory of personality, traits or dispositions are cognitive affective units. Okay. So, they involve an interconnected set of beliefs, emotions, behaviours and judgments that are, this is a quote from Nancy Snow, activated in response to situational variables or internal stimuli. And repeated activation of this sort of interconnected set leads to relatively stable behavioural patterns uh, across different situations. I'm going to give you an example of a particular trait. That should make this clear. This is an example that comes from Nancy Snow's discussion of this theory. So let's take the trait of irritability. So like other CAPS traits, the trait of irritability consists in, quote, thoughts, effects, and representations of plans, strategies, and values. It stands online and on call, ready to be activated through external stimuli or even through internal stimuli such as thoughts or imaginings. So, so when the irritable person for example, is exposed to a certain stimuli. So suppose they get bumped into by someone walking down the street. That activates certain kinds, of, um, certain kinds of beliefs. You know, people are so thoughtless, right? Certain kinds of emotions, such as annoyance and frustration, and also certain kinds of plans. I'm going to avoid busy streets in the future. This is a very simplistic example, but the basic structure would apply to much more complex traits as well. Uh, and what this happens is that that process of the activating the beliefs and it connects to future plans and goals and certain emotions is that that gets activated over different situations. So then it might happen, for example, on public transport or in a crowded movie theater. So even though those are objectively different situations, from the perspective of the irritable person, they're all relevantly similar, right? They construing the irritable person construes those situations as relevant to her trait of irritability. Okay. So I hope that gives you some rough idea of what a cap's trait is. But the essential idea is that to understand a person's behaviour, we have to understand how they are interpreting the situation they are in. It's not enough for us to say, oh, that's a situation that's relevant to the trait of say, honesty. We have to ask ourselves, does the person (coughs) in that situation construe that situation? as relevant to, for example, the trait of honesty. So finding loose change on a table, we might think, oh, well, we'll see whether someone steals the money, that's relevant to seeing whether they're an honest person. But to really know that, we need to know whether that person themselves sees that situation as relevant to the trait of honesty. So crucial to the idea of CAPS traits is the agent's own understanding of what the situation is and how that situation relates to her pre-existing beliefs, values and goals. Now, we think this is the most promising framework to understand why individuals become involved in war crimes. Okay. So we believe, for example, that military training and culture shouldn't be seen as being this set of external forces pushing on military personnel, forcing <laughs> them into certain kinds of beliefs, which is sort of Doris and Murphy's view. Instead, we think military training and culture actually lead to the development of CAPS traits that are related specifically to military goals and endeavours. So, at the most general level of military training, this is going to be true of pretty much most military forces, military training and culture aims to develop certain beliefs in soldiers or military personnel, such as the belief that a particular war is justified, or the belief that obedience and loyalty are essential to being a good soldier. Right. So what military training does is actually engage with the pre-existing beliefs and attitudes of military personnel to develop these kinds of traits. And the intention is to lead to stable and predictable behavioural patterns in response to specific situations. Now, in relation to war crimes, we think this approach provides very important insights into how crimes such as torture can come to be construed or understood by military personnel not just as permissible, but actually as consistent with military objectives and the central values of the military profession. So, you know, I've done a lot of research of torture in my career, and it's quite often that military torturers see what they do as actually part of their role as a good soldier in some cases. So that's you know, that um, incorporating the act of torture into the individual's self-conception is a very important part of understanding how individuals can come to be involved in something like torture. So research on the causes of war crimes has found that the war crimes are likely to occur when a number of the following conditions apply. And I'm drawing here on the work of Albert Bandura, who's a psychologist, and also the International Committee of the Red Cross. So a specific act of policy, such as a policy of torture, has been authorized and rationalized by military authorities. Those carrying out the policy see their role as requiring obedience to authority, so they construe their role as requiring that particular trait. The intended subject of the policy has been dehumanised, the practice has been sanitised, so referred to by euphemistic terms such as special treatment, for example. Um, The responsibility of those carrying out the practice has been displaced onto others. So this combination of factors can lead to what Bandura calls moral disengagement where, quote, those involved disengage their ordinary processes of moral judgment and reflection from the actions they are performing, so they no longer see those actions as wrong, and or they no longer see themselves as responsible for any wrongdoing that might be occurring. So this is a process of cognitive restructuring, that's Sam Bandura's phrase, and he sees it as one of the most powerful set of psychological mechanisms for disengaging moral control. Now what's relevant to us, of course, is that these factors that I've described above all involve cultivating specific beliefs, attitudes and emotions regarding their specific practice being authorised. So, you know, I think we can't understand perpetrator behaviour without reference to perpetrators' beliefs, goals and self-conceptions. And that's something that we miss out on if we apply the fairly simplistic situationist approach that Doris and Murphy uh, describe. And what this insight can provide us is the uh, recognition that perpetrators aim at reconciling their behaviour with their particular pre-existing goals and values and self-conception. And that way of, of the individual perpetrator, perpetrator's way of integrating their behaviour with their self-conceptions then informs how they carry out their actions. So I have a quote here which I think illustrates this quite nicely. So a Brazilian torturer interviewed by the sociologist Martha Huggins explained his actions as follows. He said, I don't use violence outside the standard of my conscience as a human being. I'm a conscientious professional. I know what to do and when to do it. Now this quote suggests, we don't have a lot of other information about this man, but it suggests that this particular perpetrator construed his actions as being a legitimate exercise of his professional duties, as part of his role as a good soldier. And as consistent with his self-conception as a decent man, a good person, like he's a good professional. So that self-conception no doubt influenced how he actually carried out his role as a torturer. In contrast to, for example, perhaps a torturer who viewed torture as being a form of punishment for people who were, you know, skunk. So uh, that second torturer, who's at least hypothetical in this case, would probably carry out his duties in a very different way than a professional torturer. So perpetrators of war crimes are what, like all of us really, what the anthropologist Alexander Hinton called meaning makers, who, quote, comprehend and construct meaning out of their social lives. So if we ignore this fact, uh, this will lead to a failure to understand the differences in the motivations and attitudes that can explain, at least partially, how and why individuals become perpetrators of war crimes. So what I want to do now is turn to the question of responsibility. So, there are actually at least two arguments for excusing war criminals. So, the first argument is the argument that Doris and Murphy put forward, which is what I'm going to call the impaired moral capacity view. If a person who has impaired moral capacity undermines normative competence, commits an action, it's unreasonable to hold them morally responsible. But even if we don't agree with Doris and Murphy's situation as account, so even if we think we take a dispositional view of war crimes, which is we argue for, that doesn't actually necessarily mean that Doris and Murphy are wrong in terms of soldiers' moral responsibility. And this is because another argument for excusing war criminals is based on lack of control over character. So this view would hold that, look, even if the dispositional view is correct, you know, military personnel can't control, really, the dispositions they're going to develop through military training. And so it seems unfair, unreasonable to blame them for actions that result from dispositions cultivated in a way over which they had no control. So the problem with these two accounts are as follows. The problem with the lack of control over character account is that it's going to have much broader implications than merely the question of solving some war crimes. Uh, most of us have very little control over the kind of dispositions we develop in our lives. So our dispositions might be affected by our upbringing, by our family, by our culture, by many things that are outside our control. So if we can't be held responsible for actions that result from character traits over which we couldn't control, then it's going to mean that most of us are not responsible most of the time. The problem with the impaired capacity account is that while we actually agree that in some cases impaired that well, cognitive degradation can act as an excusing condition, um, we disagree with Doris and Murphy's view that restricted moral reasoning acts as an excusing condition. And one reason why we disagree with it is that it would have the implication that we really have to excuse pretty much most people who believe what they're doing is right. So that's not just going to be, again, cases that I've talked about, but also many of the senior Nazis genuinely believe that what they were doing was right. And perhaps, according to Doris and Murphy, It's unreasonable for us to expect them to have formed alternative moral beliefs, given the circumstances in which they acted. So we're going to have to excuse them. We're going to have to excuse committed racists in some cases. (laughs) Being brought up in Alabama in the 1930s, you know, as a white person, you probably would unavoidably come to believe very racist beliefs and make very racist moral judgments. So under this view, we can't blame you because there was no way for you to form alternative moral judgments. The other reason why we think is problematic is that it has implications for the kind of attitudes that victims of war crimes can reasonably hold. So both these arguments for excusing war criminals have as a result the claim that victims of war crimes cannot reasonably blame or feel resentful towards those people who harmed them. So the victim's perspective is something that we want to bring back into the question about responsibility. Okay, so what we want to offer as an alternative account is what has sometimes been called the quality of will account. That's a little bit misleading but it'll, it'll do for the moment. So our approach to assessing moral responsibility focuses on when and under what conditions it is reasonable to, bri- to blame or praise agents for their actions. So an agent is praiseworthy or blameworthy if she is an appropriate target for a variety of moral responses, such as you might be familiar with Strawson's work on reactive attitudes. That's the idea here, that you are responsible if it's reasonable for me to feel certain kind of attitudes towards you. So perhaps to feel gratitude, that would be the case in which you're praiseworthy, or to feel resentment if you've done something bad bad to me. So in the context of war crimes, we're interested in whether perpetrators are responsible in the sense of being open or legitimate subjects to negative responses on the part of victims, responses that constitute moral blame. So is it reasonable for the victim to blame the perpetrator? That's the central question we're asking here. And we think the kind of soldiers that Doris and Murphy talk about who have been subjected to distal pressures and so forth, uh, soldiers who commit atrocities but regard their behavior as being permissible, we think they are morally responsible in that sense, regardless of how they came to hold the particular moral beliefs that they hold. So, in our view, a wrongdoer who unavoidably regards her behaviour as permissible, so who couldn't reasonably have formed any kind of alternative moral belief, is not, for that reason, an illegitimate target of emotions like resentment that characterise what it is to blame someone. So one way to think about this is to look at some cases where we do think someone should be excused from responsibility or from moral blame. So some central varieties of moral excuse work or operate by showing that the agent didn't have an objectionable quality of will toward those affected by her actions. So cases where her actions were not, for example, motivated by malice, contempt or disregard... So, to use a war crime example, suppose a soldier who's fighting in a just war, just to leave aside questions about, you know, just war and unjust war, a soldier's fighting in a just war, he inadvertently targets a civilian, but he mistakenly believes that the civilian is a lawful target. And he's not to blame for that mistake, so he's non-culpably ignorant of the fact that the target is in fact a civilian. He genuinely thought it was a soldier, a legitimate target, he had good reason to believe that, you can't blame him for getting it wrong. But he kills a civilian anyway. Now, I think all of the things being equal, it's reasonable to think that the soldier's action does not reflect a belief that the civilian's life is morally insignificant. So in that case, the soldier's action does not reflect or display contempt or indifference or disregard to the life of the civilian. And this is because the soldier didn't know he was targeting a civilian. So in that sense, the soldier is what you might call an unwitting wrongdoer, and it would be reasonable not to blame him in that (coughs) case. But if we go back to the torturer I quoted from earlier, that torturer does not seem to regard what he's doing as being objectionable. He seems to think that what he's doing is perfectly consistent with being a professional. So, in one sense, then, he's also an unwitting wrongdoer because he genuinely believes that he's doing the right thing. Okay. Uh, But in this case, and unlike the soldier who accidentally killed a civilian, or not accidentally, but mistakenly killed the civilian. It seems perfectly reasonable to believe that the torturer's behaviour reflects the objectionable quality of will toward those he tortures, such as contempt or disregard or indifference to their welfare, at the very least. Now, this doesn't mean that the torturer is consciously thinking I have contempt for my victims, or anything like that. It's sufficient in our view that the torturer acted on reasons that he endorsed, that he believed were good reasons. So, for example, he believed that torture was necessary to protect the state. And that his actions reflected an attitude that treats the the interests of his victims with the best indifference. So the attitudes that we're ascribing to this torturer are objectionable in the sense that his victims have reason to object to them. So here we're appealing not just to the, I mean, a victim of, let me start again. The the family of the civilian who's mistakenly killed by the soldier, now they might feel anger and blame towards the soldier who killed them, and we would understand that as a reasonable response given the emotional distress, but we would also think on one level that once they understand the circumstances, they should no longer feel those feelings. Once they understand it was an accident, the soldier who killed the civilian really genuinely thought it was a legitimate target, you know, can't be blamed for his ignorance, we would expect in that case that the family of that civilian to would, you know, eventually perhaps realise that blame was inappropriate in that case. I mean, to use a really trivial example, if someone bumps into you by accident, you know, at first you might be angry, and then you realise it was an accident, and then you go, okay, well, okay, it's not reasonable for me to blame you anymore, right? But under Dorison Murphy's view, the torturous victim is supposed to do the same thing as a family of the civilian mistakenly killed. The torture victim is supposed to say, well, Look, of course, you know, given that you just tortured me, I do feel a bit upset and angry and resentful, but actually it's unreasonable for me to hold these beliefs because, you know, your normative competence is impaired, you're not responsible. And to us, that's totally unacceptable as, you know, as a way of thinking about the victim's perspective here. So we do think in that case it's reasonable for the victim to object to the torturer's behaviour, to see the torturer's behaviour as being... Know, inconsistent with his status as a person. And that would be true even if the torture victim was so broken down by torture that they no longer, you know, were able to feel any kind of emotion at all. We would think on their behalf that it would be reasonable for the torture victim to feel resentment and to blame the torturer. So, you know, the torturer has mistaken beliefs about the permissibility of what he's doing, and maybe he's not even responsible for those mistaken beliefs, but that doesn't undermine his blameworthiness on our account. Uh, it doesn't make attitudes like resentment inappropriate on behalf on the part of the victim. And you know, to take the opposing view is to insist that the, the torture victim must forswear blame uh, because her torturer believes that it's permissible to treat her as 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 he does. And that fails to show the victim insufficient respect in our view. It requires her to treat her own beliefs about her moral standing, that you know, her belief that it's wrong for her to be tortured are subservient subservient to the torturous judgments. So it's it's as if, on Doris and Murphy's view and similar views, the torture victim must in some sense adopt the torturous moral perspective and say, yes, okay, you're not to blame. You know, I can't feel resentment here. And that, again, seems an unacceptable conclusion, on our view. So what matters under our view for moral responsibility is not how someone comes to have these particular moral judgments, whether it's by situational forces or by military training, or by dispositions, but the content of those attitudes and how they're expressed through the agent's behaviour. OK, so I'll, I'll wind up there. I was going to talk a little bit about a case study in relation to Haditha, but I think I'll leave it there and open the floor up to, to questions. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.